Thank you so much for coming out this evening on what was supposed to be a rather blustery evening, but I think it's turned out all right. Um, this is a recording of the podcast Fashion Talks, the podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion. And I'm your host, Donna Bishop. I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Alexandra Palmer. Welcome. Thank you. Oh, yes, make noise. It's good. Woohoo! Uh, Dr. Palmer is the ROM's Nora Yvonne Fashion Costume Curator, is a leading global authority on Christian Dior. Her award-winning book, Dior, A New Look, A New Enterprise, is a resource that even the archivists at the House of Dior's headquarters in Paris refer to as their Bible. Her latest book, Christian Dior, History and Modernity, 1947 to 1957, explores the transformative decade that followed the, set, the end of the Second World War, and that's what we'll be uh, focusing on for our talk this evening. And I actually have, this is my copy of the book that's going around, but I am, there is one circulating because we do have a few images here, but I'd love for people to really see up close some of the uh, garments and patterns and whatnot that we'll be talking about this evening. So, Take a look and pass it on. It's like we're in grade school again. So, Alexandra, before we kind of delve into some of the specifics, why Christian Dior? Can you give us just a little bit of a sense of what is it about him that intrigued you so much to, to write at least two books about him? Um, well, actually, can you hear? I, I never set out to speak on Christian or uh, to work on Christian Dior. I was always more interested in all the other couturiers that we don't know any, anything about. Um, when I was working on my dissertation very, very long ago, everyone kept talking. I was trying to find out about all these other people. And they always came back to Christian Dior and said, ah, oh, yes, but but Dior. And it's <laughs> like, no, 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 let's leave Dior aside. Aside from Dior, um, because there's probably more books written about Dior than anyone else. So... Um, from that work, and then um, I, I discovered that Holt Renfrew had this exclusive licensing deal, and I got sort of involved in those things. Um, and I was interested in, in how fashion traveled from the design house in Paris to North America and what happens to fashion when it goes out into the world. Because even if you design something you think is fabulous and nobody wears it, it really doesn't matter. Um, so... Uh, so then the V&A at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London asked me to write a book on Christian Dior. And I thought, oh, great, just what we need. Another, another book, book. <laughs> Christian Dior. Um, and so I thought, OK, well, I'll write a different kind of book. So then I wrote about the licenses and the world of Christian Dior and the business of Dior and all this stuff that no one else had looked at. And I thought either people are really going to like this book or they're going to be really disappointed <laughs> because it doesn't have all those images that we know so well in it. Um, and that was possible because the House of Dior has been very kind to me over the years, the archives, and because they do have an archive and they've had a dedicated archivist, um, well, since the 80s, since I was working on my dissertation. Um, and because the house was founded post-war and it was founded with a lot of money, the money of Marcel Boussac, who was the founder, who was one of the richest men in France, had made money during World War I and made more money in, during World War II. Um, and uh, so uh, Dior got to have really the house that he wanted. And with both the ateliers and all the um, uh, dressmaking part of it, he also had a huge operation that was way larger than the, the ateliers of um, business people. 
who ran the house and they were deep pockets for that and they were super organized and they wrote all these contracts and did all this stuff um and the house has all those records and and in that post-war situation most couture houses were really damaged because of the war paris had been closed paris had been occupied um and they were when the buyers went, they were shocked, like the North American buyers went to France, and it was in terrible state. Europe was bad, and these beautiful couture houses looked kind of tatty and not very nice. And here was Christian's Dior, who opened a new house that was spanking fresh paint and no, like, old light bulbs flying around. And so his was even more astonishing in that aftermath of the war and they've kept up and so he he founded this house in 1947 for a post-war economy well and and i just want to stop you there because you've touched on a few things that i that i want to expand on a little bit and one of them is like we tend to think of christian dior as this creative spirit and obviously the beauty of his designs you know can't go understated but i was so struck by his innovations and maybe it was part of his his team that you say he had around him but I'd love for you to share a little bit about the business innovations like he was a brilliant marketer the way he handled press his licensing of everything from hosiery to his designs was that it sounds like that was very unique in in the houses at that time um well the couture houses had always been struggling really well, from the inception, even worth in the 19th century was was trying to work out how to uh, make money from his designs because the market was, uh, well, in the first part, it was largely private clients, but there were also stores and buyers and commercial buyers. So the after the First World War, it really was the commercial buyers, which would be the stores, the Holt Renfrews, the Bergdorfs, the Macy's, as well as um, manufacturers who would buy these things to knock off, um, that were the big market for, for Paris. And you have to remember that they show their couture um, clothes in uh Dior showed for a whole week, so that was the shows were twice a day for a whole week Can in you the imagine? old days. <laughs> um, uh, and the more important you were, the earlier you saw it. And this is not private clients; these are just commercial buyers. And then there was an embargo <clears throat> that the Champs Syndicale put on um, any information being spoken about. Uh, photography, sketches, anything. So all the press had to agree um, not to say anything for this period while they'd shown the clothes, buyers had ordered, and then they had to make them. So all the couture uh, ateliers are going nuts, making all these orders all at once that then get all shipped out together and land in North America. And then it's open, you know, then it's a feeding frenzy. Whoever gets to take their thing to the manufacturer, get it knocked off first, gets it out. Whoever gets it on their model in the fashion show in the fancy department store and shows it, gets it before then the, you know, if you know the uh, map of Manhattan, how it kind of goes down. So literally, you know, there's the 59th street and then all the way down. And so then the, you know, the, the high-end yeah. copies would be in the fancy stores, and then a lower-end person would buy closer that and closer copy. to the garment. They'd district. buy the copy and then copy the copy, and then it would go all the way down to like 14th Street. Um, so that was always the race. Um, but you always uh, and Couturiers had basically done that since big industry since uh, the First World War. Um, but uh, it became it became more prescient as there were less couturiers, less money, more 
better manufacturing because North America was a, an industry of manufacturing and, and, and mass production and Europe was not. Well, and of course, his designs, I mean, I think it's so interesting that you have um, history and modernity in the title because modernity philosophically is about balking tradition. And he embraced so much dressmaking tradition and, and uh, you know, kind of not ancient to not put too tight a phrase on it, you know, techniques and so many of his designs. How did that reflect the ability for his clothing to be knocked off? And what did it do for the French economy? Like these were going to be lost arts, a lot of them, were they not, before he employed them? Well, what had happened uh, with with the war is um, all the textile industries, everything was basically seconded for the war effort or it was just decimated. Um, So, uh, I mean, Dior had been in the army. Uh, Everyone was conscripted. There were less people, there was a uh, big problem is that Germans had tried to move Paris to Berlin. Um, and they didn't, you know, it was explained by Lucien Lelon, who was the head of the Champs Syndicale, and Dior was working for Lelon at that time, um, that you can't just, it's not just a question of, of moving, because there's all these industries, it's basically a, um, a medieval city where you have these areas that make buttons, these areas that make belts, these areas that make this. So you have to have all those ancillary industries around you to be able to get the supplies. So it's a long supply chain that you can't literally move. You have to have that base, which is what North America doesn't have, which is why we've never really had a couture industry in that way. We have a ready-to-wear industry that's really strong. Um, So... uh, you know, Dior wanted he when he when he opened his house, he, all he wanted supposedly, and he says this was a modest little house, modest, but you <laughs> nice know, modest a house, Couture house in <laughs> Paris. Okay, um, uh, but he wanted to dress the most elite and the most elegant women in the world, and he wanted to have the best dressmaking techniques, and um, and he did. And he worked very hard on that. But he, you know, he'd worked for Piguet, he'd worked for Lenon, he'd really um, done that. He'd been an art gallerist. He was a very um, cultured, sophisticated man. He knew exactly what he wanted. Um, and he he knew how to surround himself with the people who could get it. And then when he had Marcel Boussac with him, then he had this parallel universe available to him, which was a business side. And he had Monsieur Rouet, who was in charge of licenses and all this stuff. One of the first things he did was perfume, <clears throat> which is another sort of arm of couture. Um, and he was interested in the fragrance. He was interested in the whole world of design and how to... Um, control that and make it beautiful and sort of deorify the world in, in many <laughs> respects. Was his fascination with buttons and and fasteners and ribbons and threads, was he unique in that way or was that something all of the couture houses were focusing on? Well, I mean, you have the name of Christian Dior on a garment and then within that garment, there's hundreds of people who've helped put it together, whether it's starting with the thread and spinning and weaving and dyeing the thread and making the ribbons and actually designing sequins. Like someone designs them, someone makes them, then you have to go and buy them. And then there's an embroiderer who decides you're going to put 35 of them on this embroidery and you're going to make it look fabulous or you're only going to use five and you're still going to make it look fabulous. (laughs) Um, So there's, you know, this huge body of knowledge that, that makes up 
a dress that makes it possible to make a couture dress. And Dior is very cognizant of all these industries, the ribbon industry, the embroiderers, um, whatever it was. And so he wanted to also sustain that. And as soon as he opened, he was heralded as sort of the savior of Paris and Carmel Snow from Harper's Bazaar in New York said, you know, you've saved Paris as Paris was, you know, saved by the, you know, the Battle of the Marne. And um, uh, so he became the most important house to see. And what he did was he introduced, uh, he, he pulled together ideas that were out there. He didn't come up out of his head with this the so-called new look but he synthesized it and he had the wherewithal he had the money to be able to get what he wanted and the staff to to make it together so his so-called new look was the cinched in waists the waists around shoulders and um very full skirts and very long skirts and in canada and in in uh america we'd had rationing in europe they didn't need rationing because they just didn't have any supplies um so people were shocked. They were absolutely shocked. Well, I think we, it's so often with the, you know, hindsight of the view of history to forget about how, like the austerity of the Second World War in Europe was so severe um, that, you know, his new look, as you refer to it as a, an unparalleled sociological aesthetic and commercial phenomena, like it was crazy revolutionary in so many, in so many ways at the time. Yeah, I mean, he put, you know, he put women back into corsets. I mean, what happened from an economic point of view, if you're a buyer and you're sitting there looking at the Christian Dior show and you're seeing these dresses and skirts come out that have like 13 yards of, of fabric in and in the book, um, we weighed, we measured. Berta Pavlov did these amazing patterns to show uh, really how much material there was. Um, if that was going to be fashion, then all your stock was no good. You were out of it. And not only did you have to not sell that stock, you had to rethink prices. You had to somehow get hold of basically two or three times the amount of material that you'd just been using for everything during the war. You had to find it. You had to buy it. You had to change your patterns. You had to change your manufacturing. You had to use more electricity even to make it because these things are huge. So it was... Um, uh, like it's all of a sudden it, it, it was something totally different and no one was set up for it either mentally. I mean, first of all, women had to embrace it and that, and that seemed to be the way it was going is that people were going to wear this stuff. So manufacturers and dressmakers had to somehow produce this stuff so people could buy it. And so of course they could also make a lot of money out of it. Um, so it's, it was the the new look was because it was so dramatic and it was so different and it made everything obsolete and of course there were protests even in Toronto against it of women who said well you know like the hemline society yes, yes. like you know you're putting women had been in the munitions factories they'd worked during the war they all had to go back into the home and you know do the uh, madmen routine of having babies and and being gorgeous and wearing dresses that they couldn't get into by themselves because Christian Dior said okay we're going to go back into corsets and crinolines and you're going to if you want to go out at night and wear a cocktail dress well you're going to have to have someone there who can hook you into it because you're not going to manage by yourself. <laughs> well this is something I was reflecting on we were just talking about it is in our current age of you know 
spandex and everything. And you might have two fasteners on your garments if you wear blue jeans. Like the effort to get into some of these garments would have been such a contradiction to what they were used to during the war and certainly not something we can truly appreciate now. And, and in the book where you talk about the Dior anatomies as you, you know, unpack each piece, and I'd love for you to expand a little bit so people know what that process was like, you know, what would it have been like just ideologically and physically to be wearing these gowns after the austerity of the war? Well, I mean, that's, that's what really interested me because, um, you know, we have all these garments that were in the collection. So everything in the book is taken from the permanent collection of the Royal Ontario Museum. And over years, I interviewed a lot of the women who've worn the garments, who donated the garments. I spoke to the old um, uh, uh, merchants, the, the creeds, the uh, Ollie Smythe, who was the Eaton's Ensemble shop, um, all the people, most of them are, are really all gone now. Um, but I've been in their houses and I've spoken to them about it. And these are their traces. The garments are in the museum. And so some of them, uh, there is one very simple little black dress that I totally underestimated. And we store everything in the museum in drawers, flat. Um, we're fighting gravity as you and I are on a daily basis. Um, and, uh, light and gravity are the most damaging things to textile. So we try and support everything. And, um, when they're in the drawers they're you know, they have no form. So we're working with shapeless, lifeless, you know, limp objects yeah. as textiles and fashion. So it's not like a cup where you take it off the shelf and it looks like a cup. It's, yeah, it's almost two-dimensional until right. you can so fill it out. We, so until you start handling it, mounting it, um, and finding the vacant body in it, um, sometimes you don't quite get it. And it, depend, it depends on the dress, too. So like 30s bias dresses are really hard to understand often without putting them on a form. Um, but even some of Dior's very early pieces, so this little back dress, which is... Um, uh, uh, was was one that I'd underestimated with all these pleats in it, Pianpolez. And um, uh, Umberta Pavlov, who's here, you know, we looked at it and I said, I, I think that it's a rectangle. And, um, and then we put it out and then it's really heavy because we're moving it from one place to another. And it's, well, how heavy is it? So then I asked um, the people I work with, I said, can we weigh some of these dresses? Said, well, we don't actually have a weighing machine in the textile department. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> someone in the museum who does. Can we borrow one? <laughs> so we started weighing things because people talk, you know, in all the literature, they talk about the weight of the clothes. They talk about the um, how they felt and, and why did all the manufacturers have to buy the clothes. You, I was reading all this stuff and it, the, the clothes were astonishing when they came out and people had never seen clothes like that. They're really different. So what physically was it that the, the buyers had to have them in hand. They had to look at them. They had to understand them. So I asked Berta Pavlov, um, pattern maker, to come in and look at things with me because I was thinking, I, I was thinking, I'm seeing this, and this is really like a wacky cut. This is like a crazy cut. Um, but I'm not a professional pattern maker or anything like that. I sew, and I've taken some classes with Berta. But um, so she came in, and she said, yes, like you're seeing, you know, the shoulder goes on the bias, and it's on the straight on the front and the back. And this is... Which had never been done before, right? Like they needed whole new dress forms and to, to manufacture. Yeah, he, you know, he had this idea of the new woman that he, that he invented. And he invented his own um, mannequin, his own dress form 
form for that. And, and as soon as you have a corseted form, which is what he was working with, um, you have a specific shape. But, and I know this because I work only with corseted forms in the history of fashion. <laughs> and so you're doing something in there and you're saying, okay, now we need new mannequins. I say, we just bought you a whole bunch of mannequins. I say, but now we're doing 1850s and that was 1840s and these are different. <laughs> so because the whole history of Western fashion particularly um, is this history of the corseted body, which is radically different. Um, for every decade. Now, Dior, you know, he was he was of an era where, you know, Freud was a contemporary, surrealism was happening, Picasso was a friend. How do you think those other thinkers influenced him? I, I mean, uh, uh, Dior had worked in, in two art galleries before with the caveat from his parents that he'd never have his name on either of them, like he would never have his name over a shop. So... He showed them. Um, same, <laughs> yeah. same actually was true with Pucci, um, who was who a very well-to-do You'd think manager. parents would have learned by now, but alas, no. <laughs> um, so he, I mean, he was very cultured and he'd worked with, um, you know, dance and ballet and was very involved in the theater. And he'd been in this gallery, Pierre Col, that had one of the first, this first surrealist exhibition. And he'd worked with these people. Um, surreal, surrealists worked with um, mannequins and deconstructed forms and all this stuff and were very, you know, manipulative um, with these ideas. And as well, you know, he's, he's in this world where there's all these new ideas coming out. Um, and all these new ideas really got kind of frozen or put aside because of the war, because there's other stuff happening. Um, so, you know, he just, he picked up all those ideas and put them all together, I think, um, after the war. And, but he, he was very cognizant of what was going on in the world and, and saw, um, you know, art and design. And, and he, he, he wrote a lot about himself about um, himself and his business. Um, and he said, like, he, he hated that wartime look. He hated the way women looked, and he wanted to leave that behind him. And it's it's not only, I think, the, the, um, the, the physical appearance. I think it's everything associated with it. So that I think everyone wanted to leave it behind, <laughs> you know, because it was a terrible time. And so when he proposed something that, uh, really eradicated that memory and said, okay, we're going forward. This is the future and it's fabulous and you look great and you have big skirts and you have little waists and you're going to look fabulous and your men are all going to come home and think you're fabulous. Um, like, why wouldn't you go for that? I mean, after, after what they would so have much uncertainty. Well, and I couldn't help but think as I was reading, like there's, like I was struggling because I kept thinking how much can we lay at Dior's feet about, you know, our current modern idea of the ideal female form and how, you know, he was, he, he talked about wanting headlines for every woman and was, you know, wanting to create this beautiful female form, but at the same time, it was so incredibly restricting, like the corseted nature of it, you needed assistance to, you know, get into some of the dresses. So there was this dependence yet independence, like, well, that's what I mean. This is like this uh, polka dot outfit here, um, uh, or the even the halter one there that has a, a cape that goes over it. I mean, this is the modernity: is that he used these um, uh, 
very stylized kind of ideas of femininity. And he looked definitely at 18th, 19th century. He looked at all the great tropes and the great moments of, of uh, French design. So the 18th century, Versailles, the Second Empire, uh, Napoleon III, and, you know, Empress Eugénie, the Belle Epoque. Like, he, he was channeling all the great moments of French design when France was absolutely supreme. It's acknowledged. Yeah. You may disagree, but, you know, the art history canon yeah. agrees yeah. that France led the way in these moments. Um, and so he sort of put all those together. But then something like this or with his licenses, um, he wanted women. He realized women were moving around in the world and he made short coats for, for the car because you're getting in the car and you were going. And um, this is a, a, a sheath dress. It has a jacket, that, a strapless sheath dress. It has a jacket that goes over it. It has this skirt that goes over it or you can wear it as a cape. I know, so, I love that piece. It's like yeah. modular dressing <laughs> in the 1940s. So he did a lot of this kind of, well, if you like it like this or you like it like that or um, an evening dress that also has an overskirt where it completely changes it, or you can wear it as a cake too. Um, uh, so this, um, you know, kind of flexibility of modernity, and these ideas are really from sportswear. Um, he used uh, a lot of menswear tailoring techniques, um, which are fantastic. Um, so he was he was always kind of playing with that. So if you know, and his skirts. Uh, looked like really slim and sexy in front, so like like whoop, you were this little pencil, but they were designed so there was a pleat in there, so you could actually walk. Um, but the way the pleat was designed was so well done that there was he took a, he eliminated all that bulk. So when you find it in ready to wear, you think oh you need a pleat, then it looks like you got a big bum because you have all this material yeah. at the back of it or it's not yeah. so nice. No bustles. Hang well, so. No, but all that was taken care of in the very clever cuts, the very clever sewing. Um, so he, you know, he allowed women to move. Certainly for evening and cocktail, you look, would look like a princess. I mean, and that's when the corsets come out in full force. Um, but he, you know, you'd, you'd be wearing this corset, you'd be the form, but all the clothes like slightly stand away. Okay. The corsets, and so you, and all the um, all the um, edges are rolled. So the hem is rolled, the facing uh, where you're is rolled, so that everything's soft, and you are literally in the frame. So you're the portrait, and the dress is fabulous, and you look great, but. The focus is on you. It's, it's not on the dress. It's that idea you, of effortless foundation. Yeah. That was such a part so philosophically as you're well. You're really framed by this portrait neckline that just sort of floats around you and you're sucked in inside. Um, <laughs> but uh, so you feel fantastic. And that's what the women told me. And that's what you read about um, and why people fell in love with it. Because, I mean, you felt like a million bucks in one of those dresses. Well, and the sound, I was struck by the mm -hmm. stories in the book about there being like this new sound as the fabric ruffled yeah, when the, you walked the rustle of petticoats throughout the land as Holt Renfrew <laughs> advertised um because because if you think if you think about the history of fashion like the, the you know the first world war what happened after that was the 20s which are these shapeless sheaths um with slips underneath and then the 30s with the bias cuts that uh, really slink over you in this kind of streamlined and elastics. Foundations were elastics. We had new technology then. Um, so bones had gone out, there weren't. So this whole generation hadn't experienced what women for centuries had worn, which were boned corsets and uh, very hard foundation garments. Um, 
and with the new technology of elastics, but he didn't use elastics. He used used shaped made garments that you went into. Um, and then and he ended up using, you know, making girdles and actually he, you know, made his own Dior girdles and underwear and stuff like that. Well, his hosiery, because mm -hmm. there was a great story in the book about how he started to make his own hosiery to match whatever the hemline of his dresses yeah. were going to be. Can you talk a little bit about the hemline anxiety that well, was the, the spreading the land? <laughs> right, the hemline anxiety, and that's because of his new look, his so-called new look. And so everyone was apoplectic after that, all the buyers and manufacturers of um, press of like, okay, what's the new hem? And uh, so Dior, I mean, he was very clever. I mean, he worked with that. He milked that. He realized that, um, you know, women couldn't, because if you have, if you, even if you bought like a new look skirt, then you'd have an old look coat and then you'd look terrible. Yeah. Like the thing didn't go. So it wasn't just that you could have one thing. You had to really change your wardrobe. So he sort of worked with that and let people work it through, but everyone was so um, worried that he and the other couturiers would introduce different hemlines and what would be right and who would be wearing and what should we do and how much material should we order and what are we going to do? <clears throat> so there was this kind of um, feeding frenzy throughout the 50s about this. And, and Dior was very funny and there's lots of pictures of him with measuring tapes. And But <clears throat> I mean, skirts were measured from the hem to the floor. Those, you know, school uniforms. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, 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 the ruler and it was the, it wasn't how far it was from your waist. It was no. how far it was from the floor. Yes. And then what size of heel was appropriate yes. to be worn or would flatter it most most nicely with and time with of heel. day of course because everything had to be you know much more suitable for the time of day how did he change the ritual of dressing did it become something to 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 honor to to be more thoughtful of with his designs um we actually he made it easy um because his courses in his dresses once you put them on, I mean, you didn't actually need anything else because it's all there in the dress. You didn't need bra, I mean, for evening and a lot of cocktail wear. You didn't need any understructure because you just put it on and it's all there. So you're kind of done. Um, I mean, garter belts, all the stuff, but all the sort of primping that went on. And, <clears throat> and Carol Rapp talks about that. And I quoted, her, I gave a long quote of her because she gave such a wonderful quote about getting dressed to um, to go out and how to go afternoon. And you'd have to do this and you'd have to do that. And someone would have to put you into your dress. And hopefully there was a martini along the way. Yeah, exactly. And you did your nails <laughs> and it was a family member because gone are the days of servants. Yes. Quel so dommage. That was, that was, yeah. The servant. <laughs> household was very big problem um but you know then women got washing machines and had to do all that be their own servants you know like so in in the spirit of you know if for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction mm -hmm. do you think we could have had dior's new look were it not for the world wars well i mean i i, I don't know but i mean i think that um you know, when you when you have these uh, very sort of seismic moments, you have these very dramatic times. You do really want to have a, a visual image, a, a concrete way of of, of change. Um, and fashion's fashion's really great for that because it, you know if you're going to redecorate your house, it's a much larger project. It's more expensive. It's more complicated. But you can actually refashion your body 
pretty easily and pretty economically if you are clever and you can sew and do things and have imagination. Um, so uh, it, it's a very clear signal. And um, I, I think, I mean, I do think the war drove drove it to that. Um, but, you know, with one of the last dresses in... in um, <clears throat> Uh, in the book, there's two last dresses. One is Venezuela that's black, that's um, the one there, actually a big bouffant classic, what you would think of Dior, and another one um, called Promesse. Um, uh, is it Promesse? Okay. Anyway, it's the last one. And it's, uh, it's pared down, minimal, like so sleek dress that's very, very architectural and um, pared away and engineered, technically very difficult to make. Um, doesn't look as dramatic, um, but it's very modern. It's very, very modern. So, I mean, he he offered something that was always, um, uh, that would continue his style and his look and, and you could, his dresses were never obsolete. And he always proposed a new, a new way forward or something new to go forward with. So it's kind of like this rolling, you know, slow change, which is how life is. We yeah. can't all afford to dump everything. Um, and uh, <clears throat> but he he was a he was a brilliant designer, I think. And he, I mean, that dress to me is very where he was going. You know, it was he was going into the '60s. You know, he died in '57, yeah. and it's it's an astonishingly modern dress. And of course, Saint Laurent, you know, got it right as his the the one person not mentioned who took over the house from him. It would have been very interesting because he died so young, you know, 52 was, he had a lot of life left in him. It would have been very interesting to see where he would have mm -hmm. taken his designs had he had a chance to see, you know, all the new evolutions that were coming with the, with the sixties. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, you know, Cardin was, had worked, worked in the house of Dior and he, you know, he, he, he knew what he was doing in the sixties. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to open it up to questions right now. And I'm going to come around. I'm just going to ask if you have a question for Alexandra that you wait till I get there with the mic so we can be sure to hear. And I'm going to do my best, Ellen, and come around. Does anyone have any questions? Wonderful. Right here at the back. Hi, great talk. Um, you had said that the founder got all of his money from the war, the First World War. Marcel Boussac. Right. How, mm -hmm. how, where did that money come from? Um, well, he got it from the, the First World War. He, he, um, he was involved in textiles. He, he bought this uh, Toile d'Avignon, uh, uh, yeah, d'Avignon, which is the, um, in the First World War, they had those airplanes that with the wings of canvas. <clears throat> so he, he bought a lot of those old airplanes that were sort of defunct also because they had new ones. So he bought all this old um, cotton that was used for the wings of airplanes and then uh, recycled it and made these kind of working class clothes. So he made his money <clears throat> in, uh, in textiles and, and um, producing kind of a lot of textiles for, for Europe. And then uh, he was just a, a, a clever businessman. So he was always seeing what was going on. So that was the, the beginning of his, um, of his money making. <clears throat> Hi there. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, I really want to focus on the idea of feminization after the war. Like you were talking about how like women were leaving the factories, going back home. But do you feel that Dior in a way created the modern woman with his silhouette after the war and creating the new type of femininity? Well, I think, you know, the, the new look definitely did propose a new idea of femininity. 
and it took. Women, women wanted it and adopted it. And if he'd proposed the wrong kind, it wouldn't have worked. Um, <clears throat> and of course, everyone varied it to whatever they could afford and, and however they were and, where, and regionally too. So, um, but in, in Dior's writing and in his traveling, he's very interested in, in all women and in all cultures. So, you know, he went to Japan. Well, he didn't go to Japan, but <clears throat> he designed this um, sort of amazing Japanese-style kind of overcoat thing to go over a kimono. He wanted to know what American women uh, wore. He was astonished when he came to Texas and saw these enormous distances, which they don't have in Europe, and everyone's in a car. Um, so, you know, these kind of car coats, and he liked the ease of American ready-to-wear and, and dressing and lifestyle. Um, <clears throat> so he's very open, I think. Um, and he wrote his little dictionary of fashion that's about how to have style, Dior style. Um, and he designed uh, makeup, and he and he designed a unisex perfume way before anyone else. Um, and he, you know, he you could just buy like a little lipstick or a little perfume and have a piece of Dior or stockings or something. So, um, you know, he definitely wanted to to influence women, and and I think he was uh, just very besotted with design and how he could change the world through design and working with people. So everyone wanted to work with him and have their. Uh, Cole of California, for instance, had bathing suits, and everyone was always pestering him to to have to sign up with them because it's a license to print money if you have the Christian Dior label. So he was very fussy about who he went into business with and always controlled everything. Um, Such a contemporary point of view. Like we mm -hmm. take it for granted that that's something that we've only just kind of figured out, but Branding. he had it going on. Yeah. 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 King of branding. And that's definitely uh, Marcel Boussac. I mean, um, uh, Monsieur Rouet, um, his business partner and this whole, parallel operation that I spoke about in my other book, um, which has actually just been republished 10 years on. So that's really good. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. And um, so uh, it's, you know, he, he, you know, controlling the brand and keeping it the way he wanted. So there's a great story where um, Christian Dior stopped and he had spies everywhere. They had this huge network of people who'd phone in and, and say, so someone, I'll, uh, phoned Paris and said, there's Christian Dior, there's Christian Dior stockings on sale in this department store in, in New York in the basement. They said, Christian Dior stockings don't go on sale, go buy them. <laughs> so they went and they bought up all the stockings because Christian Dior stockings do not go on sale. And of course that uh, store retailer was never ever going to get near Christian Dior or anything after that. You know, they were toast. So they, I mean, they had spies everywhere uh, how Dior was retailed because you had to have permission to, to see original secret shoppers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love it. Are there any more, any more questions? Great. We have time for a couple more. Um, just a question. I'd love to hear your opinion about how Raph Simmons changed the house when he took over as well as how Maria, your opinion on how she's changing the house because Dior had worked such or worked so hard to keep this particular look for women. What, what's interesting when they get um, uh, new designers in there, well, um, of course, you know, Saint Laurent was there for a short time and then Marc Bohan was there for over 30 years, a very, very, very long time. Um, uh, running the couture house and doing, um, you know, keeping Christian Dior afloat. And this was also a difficult time for, for couture in Paris with the 60s and 70s ready to wear was like Paris couture was not, 
the thing. Um, and then you get, you know, the 80s with the supermodels and all this stuff happening, and you get, heavens, an English man, um, you know, Galliano in there, and you get a, 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 an Italian, you get Ferre in there too. Um, <clears throat> so really when, you know, Couture kind of came back at the end of the 90s, 80s, 90s, and you get all the supermodels and everything, it's very interesting what happens. But Dior had um, this archive. So they've all the designers go, first thing they do is they go to the archive. And the archive is also the sketches. It's all the business records. It's all that stuff, which most design houses do not have. Um, what they have usually are sketches um, and uh, things related to making. They don't usually have any of the business records. And they usually don't have the clothes either. So Dior had started early along with Balenciaga um, of buying back and collecting old um, examples of their clothes. Um, and uh, so they go and they look at those. And now, of course, the archive, and it's now it's fashionable for design houses to have an archive. Um, uh, but it wasn't. None of them had them um, before. And they, and they didn't have they didn't have the objects if they had them. They had sketches and drawings. Um, so now they have this fantastic archive. They've bought back a lot of stuff. Um, and so they all go in there and they look at that. And they look at the the the, the, the trace, the signature things. They look at the, the bar suit, the classic white jacket with, they all kind of do one of those. Um, the uh, rouge di, uh, Dior, rouge, rouge Dior, the red color, these intense reds, there's a pink, there's a, a sort of 18th century soft blue, um, the uh, houndstooth material that's on the, for Miss Dior. Um, so they all look at all those tropes. And, it, and when I see the, when I see the couture shows and I saw the, the first uh, Rafe, Rafe one and, um, and the other one um, in Paris, the, um, I know what dresses they've been looking at. And it's very interesting how they, how they redo them and how they take them um, and, and, riff, and, and riff on them. And, and of course, Galliano was there for so long and he's such a, a spectacular designer, I think. Um, and he completely got it. He went deep, deep, deep and understood it and then really inverted it and made it something completely different. Um, and, you know, times are different now. And uh, Rafe Simons was a very different kind of designer and it was a different mood then too. So, um, you know, he had these amazing embroideries in that uh, couture show where the, all the flowers were on the wall. It was just astonishing and it smelled so gorgeous too, I have to tell you. Um, and, uh, but the embroideries, like when you see the clothes, they're so light. They're not like these 50s ones because they're these plastics and they're, um, they're, they have no weight. It's, it's really interesting. And, and the weight of garments and how you move and think about them really changes things. And um, uh, so it's very interesting and in all the sort of pale pastels colors they're using now and the, um, you know, trying to be more youthful and get away from this uh, sort of Dior's for, you know, middle-aged, incredibly rich ladies. <laughs> um, so, it, I mean, it's interesting how they're all trying to do that. And, and But it's it's all of Paris. It's the luxury marketing that's really interesting, I think, at this moment, how, how you're trying to, um, uh, well, sustain it, for one thing, yeah. um, and how you're trying to validate it um, in this age of Instagram and in this age when everything is so quickly reproduced and knocked off and, you know, H&M and, and whatever and fast fashion. 
how do you sustain uh you know prestige how do you sustain sustain uniqueness and it's it's you can get the look you know very easily um but that that workmanship is something else it's really something else and and the people in the when I um I bought another I bought a Galliano dress for the museum, um, and with it I had a um, a video of it being made <clears throat> that I commissioned. Um, there's a long and a short version, and when we put the dress out in the gallery, the short version was there, and it was really wonderful because, and this was before you saw the stuff on Instagram and everything too. Um, People went back and really looked at the dress because they saw what had gone into it. But the nicest thing about it was that um, when they'd finished the film, they showed it to the workers in the atelier and they were completely moved because they never seen anything like that because they just work on this one part of it, right? And they just work on this and they don't see because I wanted the movie to take it from you know conception to creation and through all the ateliers and it goes across Paris to the bead man and it comes back and it goes to the pleat man and all these pieces all come together. So there's this huge coordination in just producing one garment. Um, but the ateliers said how how happy they were to see it, and they were very moved because, you know, they just work on their little part of it. Um, so that was very that was very gratifying. I think everyone here and listening anxiously awaits the next exhibit you curate at the Rom, Alexandra. Thank you so so much for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you to all of you for coming out this evening. Thank you to everyone listening. You can um, follow along at Fashion Talks Pod at at a fashion curator to watch what Alexandra's doing. If you are listening on Apple iTunes, please take the time to rate and review. It is so appreciated and it helps other people find us. Until next time, I'm Donna and this is Fashion Talks. Thanks so much.